All right. Well, I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and open it to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that we've all had the, the 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 privilege. I say privilege that I think is accurate. Uh, we've all had the privilege of talking to a young child, maybe two or three years old, who only seems to know one word, and it's a question: Why? Right? Don't touch the stove, Johnny. Why? Because we get a burn. Why? Because it's fire. Why? So we can cook our food. Why? Because we like to eat our food hot. Why? Because we're not cavemen. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Go ask your mother. Why? Right? Now, I think we all can relate to the desire for children to know why we do what we do. Right? And I just have to say this morning uh, that we're going to consider a set of instructions that Paul gives to Titus. Instructions that he is supposed to apply to the members of the churches of Crete. But what we're not going to do this morning is we're not going to get to the why part of Paul's instructions. So I just have to apologize to you. You can ask why, but we're not going to get there. There's just too much for us to cover. In fact, we're not even going to complete all of Paul's instructions, which was my original plan this morning, but it's not going to happen. It'll be at least a couple of weeks. It's worth taking our time, I think, looking at these instructions for us to consider not just what they say about the Christian life, but also the unique expectations and challenges and temptations that are faced by people in different life situations. When we get done with that, after we've looked through the first verses of this chapter over the next couple of weeks... Then we'll bring it all back to the why. Because that's one thing about the letter here. One thing about this letter to Titus is that everything does come back to the why. We will get to that. That's very important to understand why is this true. And, and I hope that you'll keep that in mind. We want to understand what is the basis, the theological basis, the biblical basis for these instructions that Paul gives. But today, I'm just going to explain and, and point out these instructions to you and challenge you with them. Let's pray together, uh, and then we'll begin looking at Titus chapter 2. Heavenly Father, we are gathered this morning with a purpose. We're not just here because it's a convenient place to be. We're not here just because we like the people here. We're not here just because we like to sing or because uh, we've got nothing better to do on a Sunday morning. Those things may be true, they may not be true. Reality is we're here primarily because we love you. We want to hear from you. We want to understand your word and what you would have us to do. That motivates us, Lord, to, to, to come and open up our Bibles and read what it says and simply ask the question, what does this mean? And what should I do? And I pray that you will help us this morning as we do that. 
Help me as I speak to be very clear so that what I say will be understood. Help me as I preach not to distract or not to get in the way, but instead, Lord, I pray that you would use me as your instrument so that your word is, your word is expounded. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. Only you know, only you know the need that each person in this room has in their heart of hearts, the fears, the concerns, the struggles, the trials, the hopes and the dreams. Only you know those things. So I pray that you would take your word and you would use it to shape us that we might be what you'd have us to be this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would do your work. We'll give you the glory and the praise for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. Look there with me at your Bible, if you would. Paul, writing here to this young man, Titus, his, uh, his representative, he says this, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. But as for you, that opening expression is important because the second chapter of Paul's letter to Titus can't really be separated from the first chapter. We always have to keep in mind, when we read the Bible, you should keep in mind that the Bible was not written with chapter and verse divisions, right? This was a letter written in much the same way that you would write a letter to another person. You don't put chapter and verse divisions. I don't think you do in your letters. I haven't received a letter from any one of you like that. I don't think that's our custom. And so when Paul wrote this, it was a letter written out in paragraphs. And so it wasn't broken apart that way. The only exception in the Bible would be the book of Psalms, and only because each psalm is a, is a standalone work. Each psalm is a poem or a song or a prayer that was intended to be a self-contained unit. But other than that, these divisions were, were things that, that men have done later. They didn't come originally. And so the division between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is somewhat arbitrary. So when you're reading your Bible, you should keep that in mind. There are a lot of times when it's helpful to just keep reading when you get to the chapter break and not stop. Because the author didn't stop there. And so there's no way to separate this. There's no way for us to say, well, chapter 2, now we're going to move to something totally different from chapter 1. It's not the case. What he is saying to Titus now in chapter 2 is a continuation, and it's an extension of what he was saying in chapter 1. Of course, from chapter 1, in the very beginning of the letter, as we pointed out, Paul's emphasis here is on what real Christian faith is supposed to look like. The letter of Titus is not a, is not a doctrinal, uh, you know, uh, a treatise on what the Christian faith is. You want something like that, go and read the book of Romans, all right? Or the book of Galatians, if you want a really good in-depth treatment of those things. 
But the book of Titus, this little book, is really focused on one thing. What does the Christian life look like? If you truly believe in Jesus Christ, if you've truly trusted in him, what does that look like in your life? That's what Paul said there at the beginning. He was a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. According to the faith of God's elect, the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, Paul was saying from the very beginning that when you trust in Christ, it has a, a distinct outworking, a distinct impact on your life. And that's really what he's continuing here. Nothing has changed. The topic is the same, or the theme is the same. And so Paul is continuing here as he, is, as he is instructing Titus. There in chapter 1, he talked to Titus and he gave him his command. Titus, you're supposed to appoint qualified elders in the churches. The churches need to have godly leadership, Paul said. And he gave the qualifications. Look for men who meet these qualities. We group them into three basic categories. He's got to be blameless in his relationships. He's got to be blameless in his personal character. And he has to be faithful to the true teaching of the word of God. These are the qualifications. And Paul says to Titus, look for men who have these qualities. And when you find them, appoint them to be the elders in the churches. They need to be the ones who are leading. And then the second half of the chapter, what did he do? He explained why that was so necessary. Because if you don't have qualified men, if you don't have men who are godly and blameless and committed to the truth, what will you have? Well, you have men who are committed to their own personal gain. You have men who will corrupt the truth, who will speak lies, who will, who will twist the, the truth. Men who will do the work of the ministry for their own ends. Paul even came to the point at the end of the chapter where he said, these claim to know God, but their works say otherwise. And that they have disqualified themselves. And so there's a great serious situation in the church. And Paul says, that, that, Titus, you've got work to do. These men, these unqualified leaders who crept into the church, corrupt in their behaviors, corrupt in their morals, greedy and selfish. Their teaching is errant. He says, appoint elders who are blameless and upright, who love others more than they love themselves, who are focused on sound teaching. And then he continues in chapter 2, and he's speaking to Titus, but as for you, and so he's talked about these corrupt, unqualified leaders. Titus, as for you, let's make a contrast, Titus. You're not supposed to be like those men. Really, what Paul tells Titus here in chapter 2, I believe, may rightly be applied to all elders, all pastors in the church. They are to speak those things which are proper for sound doctrine, he says to Titus. Speak the things proper for sound doctrine. This is important. It means that pastors must not babble thoughtlessly just making noise their words must be carefully thought out and planned with the spiritual welfare of God's people in mind that is what he's talking about here when you read those words sound doctrine there in the first verse I don't know what I don't know what comes to your mind 
when you think sound doctrine. What should come to your mind is this. Healthy teaching. Wholesome teaching. We all know the expression, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? Why do we say that? It's not because we hate doctors. I mean, not any, like, particularly any more than we dislike anyone else, right? But we realize that we don't want to visit them any more than we have to, right? And so it's much better for us to focus on staying healthy than just kind of doing whatever and then, well, the doctor will take care of things later. Now, we'd be far better off to take care of ourselves now. Well, the truth is the same spiritually. We need to focus on staying healthy in the spiritual realm. And Paul is telling Titus, Titus, this is where the pastor's focus should be, on promoting health within the flock. Not having to call for the doctor when things have gone terribly wrong, but let's focus on being healthy. Let's focus on sound teaching, healthy and wholesome words. This demands that a pastor speak carefully and intentionally. Only those things which are fitting, proper, appropriate to achieve that goal. And so just like Titus, every pastor must learn to be thoughtful in his speech. I think it drives my wife a little bit nuts, but I've noticed that since I became a pastor, I have become much more precise in my use of language. I try not to hold everyone else to that standard, but I really do try to hold myself to it. That I would say nothing that would hinder your spiritual growth or well-being. That I would say nothing in a way that brings confusion or frustration. That requires a great deal of thought about what words are going to come out of my mouth. That's why, by the way, I don't know if you realize, this is why I write out my sermons. I even write my rabbit trails out on Friday when I type out my message. I did that on purpose. I plan them out. Every once in a while, I still take a rabbit trail that's not written out, but normally I stick pretty much to the script. I don't do that because I, don't do that because I want my preaching to be wooden or inflexible. I do that because I want to be very careful. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to take the risk that while I'm up here preaching the word of God, I would say something improper for healthy doctrine. I take this instruction very seriously. Because Paul makes it very clear to Titus, and, and this is important, that Titus's teaching is directly connected to the kind of spiritual maturity that he's going to find in the Christians under his care. Titus's words that are appropriate for sound doctrine have an intended purpose. Again, the pastor doesn't just get up to talk because he likes to hear himself speak. In fact, that I don't, has anybody ever listened to a recording of yourself speak? Any, does anybody like listening to a recording of yourself speak? <laughs> I, I get to do it every week because I get to sit back there and process the sound, the recording of my message and edit it for production, whatever that, you know. So if somebody wants a copy of it, they can get a copy of it. So I get to listen to myself. 
I don't like to hear myself speak. No, that's not why a pastor is doing what he does. He speaks. I speak with a specific goal in mind, and that is that the words that I speak would be appropriate for sound teaching, for healthy teaching, so that your faith would be healthy. So that your belief would be sound and wholesome. And of course, we can identify false and self-serving teachers and leaders because they have ungodly attitudes and actions. Well, Paul is making it very clear that godly leaders ought to be identified by words and actions that build up their hearers in the faith. That's what should be happening on a regular basis. What was Titus's proper speech here supposed to produce? Maybe to put this question another way, what kind of things was Titus supposed to be teaching the people in the churches of Crete? Well, that's what verses 2 through 10 are really all about. Paul was going to explain to Titus what he ought to be teaching the men and the women, the older and the younger. And then he's going to talk to Titus about what he should teach the slaves who are members of the church. And so in verses 2 through 10, there's five categories of people. Today I have a modest goal to consider what Titus was supposed to teach the older and the younger men. I'm going to take two of the categories. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at his instructions to the women, both the older and the younger, and then the week after that, we'll look at his instructions to the slaves. At some point, again, as I said, we'll get to the last verses of the chapter where Paul explains the why. Why each of these groups ought to behave in this way. So, look at Paul's instructions there in verse 2 to the older men. He told Titus, speak things that are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate. He starts off here with three qualities. Three qualities that ought to characterize Christian men as they grow older. He includes this verse with three areas in which a man's spiritual health may be put to the test. Now, we might, one, we might ask this question. I think this is important for us to consider. Why does Paul list the things that he lists here? Does he mention these because these are general Christian character traits? Or does he mention them because they are areas where older men are especially vulnerable to temptation? Well, I think you could definitely argue that these things, all of these things, apply equally to men and women, old and young. They, they are or they could be general principles for all Christians. But each of Paul's instructions in this chapter seem to be specifically uh, given and crafted and focused with a particular group of people in mind. And so when he speaks about the older men here, I think it's, I think it, it's, it's worth our considering that the reason he says what he says is these are unique areas that older men must pay attention to. 
that all their men need to consider. Uh, John Chrysostom, the 4th century pastor from Constantinople, may have been right when he said this, there are some failings which age has that youth does not. Some indeed it has in common with youth. But in addition, he says, it has a slowness, a timidity, a forgetfulness, an insensibility, and an irritability. I didn't say this. This is what John Chrysostom said. So, guys, just passing along, right? What Pastor John, the golden mouth, had to say. That's what Chrysostom means, by the way. And he says, for this reason, Paul exhorts old men concerning these matters to be vigilant. So there's reason for you older men to pay close attention to the things that Paul says here. But there is benefit for the rest of us as well, so the rest of you shouldn't tune out. First of all, an older man is to be sober. An older man is to be sober. I should have been keeping up here with my, with my notes. There we go. Whoops, that's not right. There we go. There we go. Older man, be sober. Be sober. What does he mean by that? Well, again, the, this, it means exactly what we think it means. It means not to be an alcoholic, not to be a drunk. This is a qualification for elders too, remember. Not just older men, but those who would serve in the office of pastor, elder, overseer in the church. Apparently, drunkenness was a major problem in the ancient world. Of course, it's not really any less of a problem today than it was then. Families are destroyed. Marriages are ruined. Lives are filled with chaos and turmoil as a result of our love for alcohol as a society. Now, I don't know if you've really considered what the Scripture has to say about this. A lot of times, we did a study about alcohol a couple of summers ago on Wednesday nights. And a lot of times the question when it comes to alcohol is, does the Bible say yes or no with respect to drinking? Can we drink or can we not drink as Christians? But if you consider all that the Bible says, the Bible does say that drunkenness disqualifies a man from serving as a pastor or as a deacon in the church. But the Bible says other things about it as well. And this you may find interesting you might just jot this down, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 21, both say that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we're not just talking about something that applies only to Christian leaders. Paul says it in those two verses, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says. How foolish are we if we think that alcohol is something that we can toy with? Again, I'll grant that Paul does not make a prohibition of drinking in general. He's talking about drunkenness. But the scriptures warn us about the seriousness of losing control, and it would be very unwise for us to ignore these warnings. This is not something for us to treat lightly. Older men, especially are natural leaders. They command respect, and therefore, in this area, it is imperative that older men be an example in this area. You must be sober. Next thing that he says is that they are to be respectable. The King, New King James translates it reverent here, which 
might give us the impression that he's talking about showing respect, but really he's talking about receiving respect here. Be respectable. He's saying that an older man is to be worthy of respect. Now again, we might say, well, shouldn't older men be respected simply because they are older men? Isn't there something in the Bible about respecting your elders? Anybody ever, was anybody ever taught that when you were growing up? Okay, you respect your elders. Yes. Does the Bible teach that? Well, I think there is teaching about that in the scriptures. Proverbs 16.31 does say that the silver-haired head is a crown of glory. There is a, a certain kind of respect, a certain kind of reverence that ought to come. But, but, but. But let me just say this. We have to read all of verse 31 in Proverbs 16 because the second half of the verse says this. If it is found in the way of righteousness. The silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. What does that tell us? It tells us that there is a way a man can live so that he is worthy of respect. And we all know that, right? We all know people who live in such a way that they that they command respect. They're worthy of respect. But the other side of that coin is also true, isn't it? There's such a way that a man can live in which he dishonors himself. And he makes himself unworthy of respect. And Paul is saying here through Titus to the older men, you need to live in such a way that you are honorable, that you are worthy of respect. The third quality that Paul points to here in an older man is that he has to be of sound mind, he says. The, uh, the word here that the New King James translates temperate has the idea of level-headedness. Being in control of your thoughts and your emotions. There is supposed to be a kind of stability that comes with age. One writer that I looked at this week said that it's as though men come to the church like wet concrete. But after they've been shaped by this mold, they are set, immovable, predictable, steady. As older men in the church, you ought to bring a sense of stability to this congregation so that people generally know where you stand. And can predict what you'll do in any given situation. You shouldn't be volatile. Flying off the handle or losing control of yourself. Have you ever watched a, have you ever watched a little child pretend to drive a car? You know, maybe they climb up in the driver's seat when you're parked in the driveway and they get behind the wheel. Or maybe they've got their toy steering wheel at home, you know. You ever watch them do that? You ever see how they play with that? They get their hands on the wheel and they're swinging back and forth and we're going to drive down the road like this. You ever tried driving down the road like that? I don't recommend it. Okay? Okay. You can't drive a car like that. You kill yourself and anybody who drive with you. Anybody else who might be on the road at the time too. When you learn to drive, you learn to keep your hands steady. Right? To make slight adjustments rather than radical swings back and forth. 
That's the picture that comes to my mind here when I, when I read this word. Men, as you grow older, you ought to learn to control yourself so that you can make slight adjustments here and there, not swinging wildly from one extreme to the other and leaving a pile of bodies in your wake. Paul continues, I said that he started with three characteristics or qualities of older men that ought to be true. And then he, in the second part of the verse here, he focuses on three areas in which this faith can be tested. Notice what he says there. They are to be sound in faith, in love, and in patience. That word sound means to be healthy. Men, you need to be healthy in faith, in love, and in patience. When we say that someone has a healthy appetite, we mean that he eats well. He eats regularly and he eats well. When we say that a man ought to be healthy in faith, love, and patience, what we mean is that he does those things well. His faith is not atrophied. It's not weak. Now some of you I know in here have had surgery. Surgery to replace a damaged or worn out joint. You know, a knee replacement or a hip replacement. Some of you have had way more of those than you want to think about. But what happens to your muscles when they don't get used for a while, when you're suffering pain in a joint and so you don't use that joint like you used to? What happens to the muscles? They grow weak. They shrink and they atrophy. They become ineffective. Paul has the same concern for the, church, for the men of the church as they age, that their faith might grow weak. It's really a sad, it's a sad reality that many men who began walking in faith and dependence on the Lord do not finish their course well. Far too many men when they become old, find themselves wandering, straying from loyalty to God, to his word and to his people. I don't know what it is. Maybe they begin to think they can make it on their own as Christians, and so they stop pursuing fellowship with the Lord. They stop reading the scriptures and meditating on them. They stop disciplining themselves and putting sin to death in their own body. I'm not sure why this happens. I just know that it does far too often. One writer put it this way, it's dangerous even for a mature Christian to adopt the attitude that I'm above that kind of temptation now. It may be true. It should never be taken for granted. It is safer always to be on guard. Men, you need to exercise your faith. You need to exercise your faith. You need to, to be active in the faith to keep it healthy. It's imperative. The older you get, the more you need to continue to exercise your faith to keep it healthy. The second area here that Paul points to that men have a tendency to grow weak in is love. Especially for older men, it's easy to become bitter. It's easy to feel as if they've earned the right to have things their way. But this is not a demonstration of love. 1 Corinthians 13 defines love as patient and kind, humble, gentle and forgiving. 
But you know, after we've worked and labored hard for decades, not just in the workforce, but in the church in some cases, it can be tempting to want to rest, to take it easy, to want to be served rather than to serve. This is not soundness. This is not health when it comes to love. Instead, as we grow older as Christian men, we ought to serve more. We ought to forgive better. We ought to speak more sweetly. We ought to grow in our concern for others. In a word, we need to love. This ought to be the product of a lifetime of walking with God, following His word and maturing in our faith. Think about what happens to a jar of preserves when you, you can it and you set it on the shelf. The longer those preserves sit there, what, what happens to them over time? Anybody know? They get sweeter. Leave them long enough and it's just a bunch of sugar. <laughs> In a lot of ways, I think that's what Paul is saying here. Men, as you grow older, you ought to grow sweeter in love. You ought to demonstrate that love more and more in the midst of God's people. Finally, Paul wants to see older men healthy in patience. Faith, love, and patience, he says. Listen, life can be difficult. Over time, we ought to learn to trust in the Lord, to depend on Him, and to endure suffering. I don't think anybody would deny that old age often brings suffering. Physical pain, physical weakness and suffering, the sorrow of losing friends and loved ones, and the frustration and the anguish that comes when you can't do the things you used to love doing. But the reality of suffering, according to James, and by the way, we heard this this year as Edward has twice spoken to us on the book of James and shared with us from the book of James what, he, what, the, what the Lord says about suffering. Suffering is meant to produce patience. As Christians, we're not to resist the work of patience. We're not to resist it. We're not to fight against it. According to James, we're supposed to let patience have its perfect work, which ends with us being complete, mature. Growing old, growing old is something you do not control. I realized that last night. I was talking with Sarah. Um, she stayed with us last night and because and, uh, she was here yesterday for the ladies' banquet. And we were just chatting, and she was, I was asking about her family, and she mentioned her brother. And she said he's 30, I think she said. And she was talking about him, and I, I looked at Paulette, and I said, you know, for a moment, I was going to say, oh, so he's our age. And then I thought, wait a second, I'm, not, I'm closer to 40 than I am to 30, so never mind. Okay? We don't have a choice. Time moves on, and we grow older. That's what happens, right? And it happens when we don't realize it. And all of a sudden, we're going, wait, what happened to 30? Well, there's 40. What happened to 40? Well, there's 50. What happened to 50? I mean, just, it happens. You can't stop that. You have no control over that. Men, 
We need to pursue spiritual maturity. That's what James says is the product when we endure hardship patiently. See, Paul says the older men need to be healthy in patience. They need to be pursuing spiritual maturity, letting patience have its work in our life as we endure the things that come with growing older. All of these things, Paul says, these are key. Now, Maybe you're sitting there and you think, well, pastor, you said you were going to talk about the older men and the younger men, and you spent all this time talking about older men. When did the younger men get their instruction? Well, it's coming. Okay. Look with me at verse 6. We're going to skip because we're going to skip over his instruction to the women. We're going to talk just to the men here. Look at verse 6. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. What is his instruction here to the younger men? Well, two things I want to point out here that are important. First of all, Paul expects Titus's instruction of the younger men to follow the pattern he's already set for the older men. So you'll notice he only, gives one, he only gives one requirement for the younger men. The reason for that is he's already listed all these other things. And he says, likewise, the pattern of what these younger men are to be taught is to follow what the older men were to do. If the older men are to be self-controlled, respectable, healthy in faith, love, and patience... Then let's ask the question, what character traits, what attitudes should younger men seek to learn? Well, self-control, reverence, healthy in faith, love, and patience. Because you don't get there, you don't just magically one day you go, well, I'm an old man, now I must have these things. No, you pursue them as a younger man so that when you are older, you have learned and developed these qualities. That's what, that's what this is about. So his instruction to the younger men is that they should follow the pattern that is set for them. Well, the older men set the example. The younger men, your job is to follow the example. He says they're to be sober-minded. It's the same, or rather it's a different form, but it's the same word that Paul used back in verse 2 that I said meant of a sound mind. New King James translates it temperate. It's that steadiness and stability. Because the younger men have particular tendency to be unstable. Paul says, pursue that same stability. Follow the pattern. Shape your life after the mold of these older men who are demonstrating these qualities in the church. And then when you have been set in concrete, according to that mold, you yourself will bear those same qualities. You will set the same example. The other expectation that Paul has of Titus here is that he himself would serve as an example to these young men. Again, as I said before, the men who would serve as pastors in the church must be models of godliness. 
They must be examples for others to follow. Our lives are supposed to be a pattern for the people who are under our care, the people who follow after us. According to this passage, especially for the young men, notice what Paul says here about Titus's pattern. There must be integrity of doctrine, he says. In doctrine, you need to show integrity. Again, doctrine simply means teaching. There's to be reverence. There's to be incorruptibility. Again, these words are really a summary of the qualifications that are from chapter 1 about what it means to be faithful to the word of God and blameless in your personal relationships and conduct. These are absolutely necessary because the enemy, the one who is the opponent of Christ, is going to criticize. He's going to say to speak evil against you and against me, against all of us as Christians. That is a reality. I just want to say that, right? No matter what we do, there's going to be an opponent to speak critically, to speak ill of us. But what Paul is saying here, Peter talks about it in his letter as well, don't give them any ammunition. Don't give them something legitimate to point out. If they're going to speak evil of you, let it be lies, not the truth. Because you know as well as I do, you know as well as I do, that if one church in this town or one pastor in this community or one Christian in this community publicly does something that, brings, uh, that, that, that is uh, a shameful thing, it reflects on everyone. People say, well, you Christians, all those churches, they're all like that. Never mind the fact that it's one person, one pastor, one church. That doesn't matter. It's a broad brush and we all get painted with it. You know that's true. Paul says, don't give them the ammunition. They're going to speak evil, but it better be lies. <laughs> See, be an example. Be a model so that when someone wants to speak evil of you, they got nothing to work with. They can't find anything. I'm reminded of Daniel. You remember Daniel, the Old Testament? His enemies wanted to try to find a way to trap him. And they watched him like a hawk and they searched, but they could find nothing. Not one area in which his life violated the law or the expectation of the king. Everything he did was on the up and up. And so the only way they could, the only way they could get after him was to make a law that went contrary to his convictions. They had to craft a law specifically to target him. That was it. There was no other way to do it. That's the kind of example that Paul says the pastor is supposed to have. And, of course, everything that we've said here, it's not just pastors. All of us need to pursue that same kind of example, that same kind of life, so that the enemy has nothing evil to say about us. Because we live a life that's consistent. We can't be hypocrites. We have to practice what we preach. We have to set an example. Older men... You need to join with me as the pastor to set an example for the younger men to follow so they can learn self-discipline in their Christian walk. And we've started with the men. Ladies, don't worry. Next week we'll get to your instructions. I know you're concerned. 
But again, I think it's easy for us to see that these principles are not limited simply to one sex or to one age. Either you're to be setting an example or following an example. And on some level, those two things are really, they can't be separated. Men, are you living a life of restraint? A life of temperate uh, self-control? Or are you under the influence of alcohol and drugs? Or anything else? Are you walking in a way that is worthy of respect? Or are you following a path of dishonor? Are you steady as a rock? Or are you unstable as water? Are you healthy in faith, in love, and in patience? Or have you grown weak and ineffective in one of these vital areas of your life? It's a terrible shame to see an older man turn from the faith and become a spiritual shipwreck. It's just as terrible when a young man rejects a godly example, becomes enamored with the world, and pierces himself through with sorrows. So let me just submit to you this this morning as I finish. Men, it's time for a spiritual checkup. You need to examine your own heart and your own life in light of the Word of God. Let us follow the example that is set in the Word of God that we in turn might be an example to those who follow us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are challenging truths because none of us is perfect and all of us, no matter how hard we try and no matter how uh, much we love you and try to serve you and want to discipline ourselves, all of us fall short. All of us are weak. It's so easy to sin, Lord. It's so easy to fall prey to temptation. All around us are constant threats and dangers of, of sin. And, 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 and Lord, it's like even as we, as we grow, they change. And over time, they change. And so the things that used to, be, uh, that used to tempt us now, are, we were tempted in different areas, different ways. And Lord, it, it can be very easy for us to fail. I realize that you don't call for us to be perfect because you know we can't be. Even though you hold up the standard of, of, of perfection, this example, this model that we're supposed to be to demonstrate, I realize that you're gracious to us when we fall. Help us. Lord, help us to see this morning if there's an area in our life. Help me to see if there's an area in my life where I'm not living up to the example you've called me to set, where I'm not measuring up to your standard of what's right. Forgive me for those failures to trust you, failures to, 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 to exercise my faith and to grow in love and to endure hardship with patience. Lord, I pray that you would help me. Help me from this day on to live in a way that is an example for you that each one of us would take seriously our own life, whether we're living out our faith in a very real way, that we take seriously the fact that other people are watching us, that, that younger men are, are, are coming after us and will follow in our pattern and our example. So let us set the right example. 
And I pray, Lord, that we would glorify you in this by our life, that you'd be pleased, that you might say to us one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to finish our course, Lord. And I pray most of all, Lord, that our example of faith would show every one who is here what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. That if there's someone here this morning who's heard the truth about Jesus Christ but has never repented and trusted in you, I pray they would see by my example and see by the example of the men in this church that we are always repenting, always turning away from sin and self and casting ourselves at your feet for your mercy and praising you for your grace. We'll give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.